I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, If you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, October 15th, 2012. I overdid it over the weekend. Oy. You ever have one of those weekends where, you know, you have to come back to work in order to get some rest? <laughs> yeah, I'm in no shape to be doing weekends like that. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. So here's the question I have for you. Is your pastor on topic? And you're going, uh, well, what's the topic? <laughs> Glad you asked. See, see, here's the deal. Scripture, the Bible, is about Jesus. Jesus himself even said so. You think about two particular passages in, you know, when it comes to this concept. One is where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. He says to them, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And you refuse to come to me to have eternal life, right? Right? To have life, right? And then also you've got, well... Jesus on the road to Emmaus, the day of the resurrection. Jesus has raised from the dead. First Easter Sunday, the, you know, the one where Jesus bodily raises from the grave. You know, it is just now the third day after he's been crucified by Pontius Pilate. He is raised from the dead, and he's on the road to Emmaus. A couple of disciples are doing a Sabbath's day journey to uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jesus comes along and walks with them, and he opens up the scriptures to them. Now they don't know it's his because the scripture says their eyes were held. And it's you know that you think of a miracle here is what's going on here. Their eyes were held, so they weren't able to recognize him. Miraculous. Uh, work on Jesus's part there, but then he opens up the scriptures to them, beginning with Moses and the prophets. You know, it shows them all the passages concerning himself. And so the question is this: Is your pastor on topic? Is he proclaiming Christ, 
or is he preaching himself? Is he preaching the anointed Messiah, Jesus, right? That's kind of redundant, by the way, Messiah. Yeah, if you, yeah. Anyway, is he proclaiming the anointed one, Jesus, or is he proclaiming you, the Christian? Okay, the, you know, to be off topic is to like miss the whole point of Scripture. And um, if your pastor isn't really preaching Christ, isn't really proclaiming Him from every passage of Scripture then he's pointing you to something other than Jesus. He may be pointing you to him. Now, spending valuable sermon time explaining the the funnier anecdotal stories of his life, which is not the job of the pastor, by the way. The job of the pastor is to preach the word. You look at the... Uh, you know, the first church, you know, that always cracks me up, you know, Pentecostals, you know, you're kind of painting with a broad brush here, but you know, those who consider themselves Pentecostal, uh, they are laser beam focused on the gifts of the Spirit, and particularly the gift of tongues. And that, you know, to be a Pentecostal is to speak in tongues. Yet, if you look at the biblical text on the day of Pentecost, um, the, the first Christians who were converted on the day of Pentecost were not focused and, you know, obsessed with speaking in tongues. No, they were dedicated to the apostles' teaching. So my question is, is your pastor dedicated to the apostles' teaching? Um, Is he focused on Christ? Is he telling, basically spending valuable sermon time explaining to you all that Jesus did, all that Jesus said, all that Jesus taught, all all of this for you, because Jesus is none other than the one true God in human flesh. Or is he, well, off topic? You see, that's the kind of the big question. Is he off topic or is he on topic? Is he proclaiming Christ or not? Is he or is he too, you know, too busy to be burdened with, you know, teaching you about Jesus? Does he think he understands the scripture by burdening you with a bunch of laws which only condemn rather than proclaiming the Jesus who bled and died for you on the cross and the one who forgives? See, you know, lots lots going on here because the Bible is really all about Christ and the gospel is proclaimed clearly throughout all of Scripture. In fact, over the weekend, I was uh, doing a little more church history reading, and um, if you've, I don't know if I, did I mention this a couple weeks ago? A couple weeks ago, I was rereading large portions of uh, Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, and in there, Eusebius mentions an apologetic work that he had written where he goes through the, uh, the, the prophecy of Daniel in the 70 weeks, and I and I made a note to myself while I was reading. You know, I got to track that down because I don't think I'd ever read Eusebius's apologetic works. And so, you know, I you know this over the weekend. Um, just so you know, I um, I competed in a disc golf tournament. There's a there was a huge disc golf tournament uh, in Central Indiana, and I participated in. And I came in second from my division. Um, and uh, so, but uh, stiff, stiff competition. The guy who beat me was from Michigan. But anyway, um, but uh, oh, I way overdid it. I mean, <laughs> the su- Saturday evening, I I look like an invalid. <laughs> Sunday afternoon, I <laughs> I needed a walker. I mean, it was uh, that's you know how much I put into this, you know, because I really wanted to win, but I I missed I. Ah, I lost by three strokes. Anyway, you know, but uh, you know, it was a great competition. He beat me by uh, four strokes the first round. Second round, I came back and I beat him by a stroke, but I still wasn't able to uh, get the edge and, and uh, edge him out. So, 
Yeah, I only came in second. But anyway, so Sunday, you know, I'm I'm in I'm in my my man chair. I, I've got a man chair. I, these are important things to have. If you men, if you don't have a man chair, I strongly recommend that you get a man chair. My man chair has like you know little massage settings. You know, you you hit a button and goes, mm, and you hit another one and goes, mm, you know, and then it's got you know heat too. You can hit. so on cooler days, you know, I'm sitting in my man chair, and over the weekend I'm reading. So I you know I I got this mm, going. <laughs> Going on, trying to get some heat to my sore muscles and recuperate. And oh, I had a major head. Anyway, so I tracked down this book. Turns out it's not in my library. You can get it online for free. And uh, and there's somebody who's made the entire work because it's in two volumes. And uh, the name of the work by Eusebius, it's an apologetic work. The name of the work is called The Proof of the Gospel. In fact, if you go to Google Books, you can get volume one online. But uh, there's a Kindle version, a version that's avail- available for a buck, and it's both volumes. And uh, and whoever put it together, obviously, you know, you know, they did it on the cheap. And but the point is, is that there's some really great stuff, uh, some great historical apologetic arguments for from the scriptures that Eusebius puts together in this in this this book that's worth. Um, it's worth a lot more than what I paid for. I paid, you know, ninety nine cents, you know, for the Kindle ver- uh, Kindle version. But I was walking through certain sections of, it, and there's a section that he has there. Where he goes through, and he, you know, he goes to Deuteronomy eighteen eighteen. Uh, you know, actually, let me let me pull this up in my Bible. Let me see if I can uh, pull the uh, computerized Bible is over here. Here we go, Deuteronomy eighteen. Um, I'll, I'll start at verse uh, fifteen, and uh, here's what it says: The Lord your God. You know, this is uh, you know Moses speaking. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see the great fire anymore, or we will die. And the Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and and he will tell them everything that I have commanded him. If anyone does not listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name, I Myself will call him to account. Wow. Okay. So I mean, yeah, I I know I've, I've I've you know looked at this verse before, but anyway, you know, kind of tease out the com, you know, the the idea here is that all the way back in the time of Moses, okay, it's this is the book of Deuteronomy. The children of Israel are getting ready to go into the promised land, right? And um, you know, one one of the last things that Moses talks about is that God Himself is promising to raise up a prophet like himself. Moses is kind of like the, the the first quintessential prophet, if you would. I mean, he was God's spokesman. He, he met face-to-face with God and spoke the word of the Lord definitively. What he said got written down not only on stone tablets, because God wrote you know the, the Ten Commandments, kind of kicking off the scriptures himself with the stone tablets, but everything gets written down in the Torah for the people of Israel that they are to, you know, to study these words and not add to them. They they are to uh, you know to read these words and understand them and and you know obey and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so God promises here. The Lord promises He's going to raise up a prophet. Okay, and this is talking about Jesus, one who's like Moses. And there's an entire section in uh, Eusebius's work, the proof of the gospel, um, where he goes through the old. Te- uh, he he looks at the things that Moses did, and then looks at their parallel accounts in the gospel text, and it's brilliant it's just brilliant <laughs> and see that's the thing 
The scriptures are all about Christ. We need to be finding him all over the text and and embracing what the church has done historically in reading, uh, looking at the types and shadows of the Old Testament as being fulfilled in the life of Christ and making the and drawing the parallels there. They, I mean, they're, they're, oh, it's just fantastic stuff. So, is your pastor is he on topic, pointing you to Jesus, or is he doing? Does he do this? Okay. We, you know, I've I've heard so many seeker driven pastors do this that I mean, seriously, I'm beginning to think that this is some kind of a a, a way of that in which they propagandize. They'll sit there and go, "Our churches, we're Christ focused. This is going to be a Christ centered sermon," and then the guy talks about himself for like 40 minutes. It's you know, it's, how is it Christ centered unless, of course, you're the Messiah? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, see, it a church isn't. Christ, I know this is going to sound just like ridiculously simplistic, but work with me here. Are you ready? A church isn't Christ-centered unless they proclaim Christ, unless they preach his deeds, his words, his teaching, and focus you in on him. A church is not Christ-centered, even if it says it is, um, if they're pointing you to you or pointing you to the pastor or pointing you to the exploits of the church. or Yeah. <laughs> It's all about Christ, you see. So are you on topic or are you off topic? That's the question that you need to ask, and that's one of the things that you need to be discerning about. Who is your pastor pointing you to, Jesus or himself? Who's your pastor pointing you to, Jesus or you? Yeah, yeah. those are some of the options here. All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Face, kicking off the day. By the way, my muscles are not nearly as sore. The headache has kind of gotten down to a dull roar. Obviously, I need to <clears throat> better condition myself for tournaments in the future. Yeah, maybe I'll spend the uh, <clears throat> the winter months because guys, you can't play uh, you can't play disc golf during the winter months unless you really like cold weather, snow, and you know, and just bad things uh, here in Indiana. So yeah, my uh, my my exercise activity usually goes indoor during the, the, the upcoming months. So I'm just saying anyway, so um, here's what we're talking about in today's edition of fighting for the faith. Um, we've got a prophetic sports numerology update from <laughs> William Tapley, the third Eagle of the apocalypse co-prophet of the end times. And I'm going to actually uh, back up my claim regarding William Tapley today by pointing you to a biblical uh, passage that talks about the spirit of prophecy to kind of demonstrate the point of what's wrong with William Tapley. Um, then we've got um, I've we got an elephant room update, uh, uh, elephants debt update. Uh, there's a, there's been additions to the elephants debt website, and uh, recent developments there. We're going to take a look at that. Um, you know w- what's going on there with the elephants debt. You know what's the reaction of the higher ups in Harvest Bible Chapel and uh, James McDonald and others. Then we've got a Brian McLaren update. We have a listener who over the weekend. Uh, attended an event that was where Brian McLaren was uh, promoting his teachings, and um, prior to attending the event, he asked me if you know if I have an opportunity to ask him a question. What question should I ask? And so this discerning listener fighting for the faith uh, during question and answer period stood up and very politely uh, asked a very challenging question of Brian McLaren and. Uh, I'm going to uh, play for you that question and McLaren's answer. We've got, um, and then we've got a fantastic uh, op-ed piece called "Farewell to American Pro- the American Protestant Majority." Uh, worth reading and passing along. And then for our sermon number, uh, not sermon, hour number two, we have a sermon review. And no joke, okay? If you've listened to Fighting for the Faith for any length of time, then you know from time to time, I 
glibly say something like, I believe the the entire Bible to be the Word of God from Genesis to the Book of Maps, right? You, you, you've heard that, that statement before. Well, never before in my um, listening uh, of two bad sermons have I ever run across a pastor who's actually trying to exegete the Book of Maps. Well, that is going to come to an end today. We're going to be going to Vision Church in Miami, Florida, uh, Pastor Matthias, and uh, we're going to be listening to a sermon entitled Constipated Christians, and no joke, the guy is going to literally, no joke, exegete the book of maps. <sighs> Just when you think things in the visible church can't possibly get worse... That, you know, it just it does, and see that's the thing, folks. If you're sitting there going, "Okay, it can't get any worse than this. It can't get any worse than this." Boy, if I got a, I've got bad news for you. Okay, it's gonna get worse than even this. Okay, in fact, uh, should the Lord allow me to continue to do fighting for the faith for the next five years, what we're gonna be covering five years from now will make your head spin compared to what we're uh, covering today, and and. What we're covering today already will make your head spin. So it's just something to look forward to. I want to make sure that, uh, you know, you know, but then again, you know, the Lord has to allow me to continue to do this for the next five years. That's just anyway. So, all right. With that, we're going to dive into the program proper. You might want to don your uh, tinfoil pyramid hat or any other safety devices that you use in order to protect yourself from the heretical gamma rays that come from segments like the one that you're about to hear. Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane, listen to yourself, turn world to the tongue, needs dummy, serve your own needs, beat it up, a knock, speak, grunt, no strength, the ladder starts to clatter with fear, fight down, high, fire in a fire, representing seven games in a government for hire in a combat site. Left to us and coming in a hurry with the furies beating down your neck. Team, my team, reporters, battle Trump, Kevin Crop, look at that, no plane, fine, death, uh oh, overflow, population, common All right, yeah, that's our uh, William Tapley, Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and co-prophet of the End Times update music. All right, so um, have you been paying attention to the uh, very clear messages that God is apparently sending to Barack Obama via sports numerology? Um, yeah, I trust me when I tell you, listen, I missed all of this. I've just, it totally went over my head. I did, wasn't even paying attention, but don't worry. Uh, William Tapley, the third eagle of the apocalypse and co-prophet of the end times, he's Johnny on the spot with these, um, prophetic numerological updates <clears throat> from sporting events and, uh, there to be a harbinger to let the, you know, to let the world know of these, uh, imminent signs of doom, um, that are, um, <clears throat> well being played out, well, in football games, like last Monday's Monday Night Football game. No joke. <clears throat> Here's William Tapley. Welcome to Revelation Unraveled. I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse and the Co-Prophet of the End Times. 
Recently, it has become more and more obvious to me that Almighty God is warning America and our President Barack Obama through sporting events. And the most recent example was this past Monday night on NFL football. And as the Christian second-string quarterback, Tim Tebow, pointed out, this was the 666th game in that series. And, oh, man. and as, of course, we all know, 666 is the number of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. And the good news is this, okay, that today is Monday. And today, Monday Night Football, it'll be the 667th. So we're in the clear now that once tonight's game gets played, we're past the bad numerology. Even the lamestream media is jumping on the bandwagon. An article on Yahoo Sports pointed out the amazing number of sixes associated with the first-string quarterback of the New York Jets, and that would be Mark Sanchez. His jersey number is number six. Yeah. He has six touchdown passes. Yeah. And he has six interceptions. Now, now he has more touchdown passes than that after yesterday's game. I watched Sanchez and Tebow work together to destroy the Indianapolis Colts. It was rather painful, so he's got more than six passes now. It's also interesting that he is averaging 6.6 yards per pass. His longest pass is 66 yards, and his passer rating is 66.6. So um, my question then is kind of the obvious one. How come you're not saying that Sanchez is the Antichrist? I mean, quite frankly, I'm not feeling, you know, like warm fuzzies toward him right now after the Jets defeated the Colts. I mean, so, you know, I'm I'm thinking there's something satanic going on there because you know, everybody knows the Indianapolis Colts are supposed to win, you know, when they play the Jets. I don't believe any of this is accidental. Now, 666 is not the only important number in end times prophecy. The number 444 signifies Barack Obama in the United States. In the book of Daniel, chapter 11, we see that the first 12 verses are arranged in a 4-4-4 sequence. They are succeeded by 18 verses, which suggests the number 666. And they are followed by 15 verses in a 5-5-5 sequence. That means that the Antichrist is succeeded by the number 555, which symbolizes Mary's Rosary. Mary's Rosary will defeat the Antichrist. Huh? Um. Yeah, I, I don't see Mary's Rosary mentioned anywhere in any passage of any scripture. And the reason 555 signifies the rosary is because there are 15 decades in a rosary. Five joyful mysteries, five sorrowful, and five glorious. By the way, this is prefigured in the Old Testament. When David defeats Goliath with five smooth pebbles. David, of course, prefigures Jesus. Goliath prefigures the Antichrist. But the weapons which he uses, those five smooth pebbles, prefigures the rosary. Now, before I look at how these... Oh, man. Oh. I mean, 
how, how do you know they don't prefigure, you know, like the Olympics? I mean, aren't there five rings in the Olympic, uh, you know, symbol? How do you know that that doesn't prefigure the Olympics? Numbers turn out in the Monday night football game. I want to look at a several other very interesting sporting events where God is also warning America and President Barack Obama. Just a few weeks ago, I did a video showing that explosion at the Iranian soccer match where a player accidentally threw a grenade at a big O. The big O stands for Barack Obama. A few weeks before that, I showed where the American flag fell at the Olympics. And that, of course, prefigures the downfall of America. Several years ago, I pointed out to you the defeat of the horse Big Brown, who was a stand-in for Barack Obama, by the long shot Datara. And of course, Datara stands for terrorism. All of these indicate how America and Barack Obama will be defeated. Now, the following clip I don't think I have shown you before, but it's really a fascinating incident. This was at an NBA game, I believe just this past winter, where an, a deranged female fan walked out onto the court during the game saying, where's Kenyon? Now, she wasn't talking about Barack Obama, but nonetheless, Kenyon refers to our president. So is she the whore of Babylon? I'm just curious. Because he came from Kenya. And it's interesting. Please note on this clip that the Los Angeles Lakers had just scored their 44th point. No way. All right. So he's showing the clip. Now. There's the Lakers. And there's a woman right in the middle of the court. Right, right after their 44th month, a woman comes out and asks, where's Kenyon? That's unbelievable. I mean, this is such a clear message. Um, who? What was the message that was sent again by that woman? Now, this amazing incident, which I don't think has ever occurred before, is God's way of verifying what I've been saying about Barack Obama. <laughs> and that is that, number one, he is the last king of the South in Daniel chapter number 11. And what if Romney wins? What will you be saying then? I mean, boy, this is going to mess everything up, you know, as far as all your predictions. That's why she said, where's Kenyon? Uh-huh, yeah. Barack Obama is the Kenyan. Right. And, of course, the score, Los Angeles had just scored the 44th point, shows that Barack Obama is the leopard in Daniel chapter number 7, verse... Yeah, I totally missed that. ...number 6, because the leopard has four heads and four wings. Now, this next clip is equally amazing. Okay, done. <clears throat> so, here's a question I have for you, and this is one of the points I make from time to time. What's, what is the key problem with um, William Tapley? Now, <laughs> Now, I heard some of you right there. I, I heard you say, uh, well, he has a screw loose. <clears throat> I'm not going to dispute that, but the, there's a core problem here, okay? He's putting himself forward as 
a prophet. He's a co-prophet of the end times. And the mistakes that William Tapley makes come from a core problem. And that core problem is shared by a whole bunch of people. Okay, It's really easy to spot with William Tapley because, well, um, no one takes him seriously. But there's a whole lot of other folk out there that make the same mistakes that William Tapley makes, and, the, and it comes from this core problem. And the core problem is this. He's off topic. Okay, Revelation. Yeah, I'm going to quote Revelation here. Isn't that great? You know, we're talking about biblical eschatology and numerology. Revelation, yeah. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19, okay? Now, I'm going to um, read. I'll start at verse 6 so that we get the context. Revelation 19, verse 6. John, the apostle, writes, he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet, the angel's feet, to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. For I am a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You want to know how you can tell a true prophet from a false prophet? The one who puts himself forward as a prophet, who doesn't, focus you in on Christ and him crucified because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, but has you off and distracted with off-topic topics at, you know, finding, trying to figure out biblical numerology and looking at sporting events and whatever. They're off-topic. See, William Tapley is a false prophet for many reasons, but the, the core reason is because he's not pointing us to the testimony of Jesus. He's not proclaiming Christ and him crucified. His solution for the Antichrist is Mary's rosary, not the crucified and risen Savior, who will return in glory one day to judge the living and the dead. It's very easy to spot with William Tapley. But see, the thing is, there are a whole host of other eschatological experts who make the exact same mistake. And the reason why it's harder to spot them is because they are far better at packaging their false prophecies. They are slick. They wear good clothes. They've got good production people. They are broadcast on satellite networks across the globe, and they make tons of money and jet hither and yon, right? But they make the same, they make the same mistake that William Tapley does. Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. They don't focus you on Christ. They're completely off topic. 
All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. When he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? Jesus wasn't looking for affirmation. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes. That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand... You turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's cheating. You can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew.
Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages, over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Um, is your pastor focusing in on the testimony of Jesus or something else? Something to think about. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to contribute automatically $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us, and what that does is it allows us to, you know, we have a base that we can work from so we can better budget our expenses and plan our next pirate attacks. Well, actually, we don't do it. Anyway, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, little edit for the program today. I'm going to hold off on the Elephant Room update, and uh, we'll get to that uh, either tomorrow or Thursday. And instead, I'm going to uh, do our Brian McLaren segment next, just because I'm watching my time here, and I'm I'm realizing I'm not going to be able to fit everything in. So with that, let's uh, go to our next segment. Here's uh, our Brian McLaren update music.
majestic mystery. Yes, that's Brian McLaren singing. Oh, mysterious majesty. He doesn't know much about God because he can't quite figure him out. He's postmodern. My small hand can never grasp I gotta warn you, if you listen to that song like, you know, for hours on end, it'll basically beat your brain into a pulp and you won't be able to use it anymore. So <clears throat> limit your contact with that particular song by Brian McLaren. Okay, so uh, recently, uh, like over the weekend, uh, Brian McLaren was out there uh, doing the tour, uh, promoting his latest book, uh, you know, how Jesus, Buddha, and the Muhammad all cross the road kind of thing. And uh, one of our listeners, uh, his name is Alan Miracle. Uh, he's from Georgia, and he he actually attended the uh, event itself, and well, he uh, took some time to prepare a question for Brian McLaren, and uh, he, in fact, he asked for my input prior to the event, and you know, if you know, basically asking me if you know if I could ask Brian McLaren one thing in public, what would it be? And the question that I gave him to ask him really has to do with the the fundamental question is by what authority is he making up his own version of Christianity? And so uh, I'm going to play for you Alan asking the question as well as Brian giving the answer to the question by what authority he's kind of concocting his own version of Christianity. So uh, with that, here is Alan and his question and Brian McLaren and his answer. We'll uh, point some things out along the way because it's a fascinating exchange. Here we go. Uh, yeah, thank you for coming, and I thank you, and I appreciate your talk. Thank you. Um, and I, I kind of wrote it down so I wouldn't screw it up, so I, I hope you'll uh, excuse me. I, uh, uh, this evening you've spoken about how followers of Jesus can and should relate to people who don't follow Jesus. That was one of the main themes. Uh, this touches on one of the most central commands and examples from Jesus to his people uh, in the Scripture, and that is to proclaim forgive, um, sorry, uh, repentance and the forgiveness of sins to uh, all people groups. Uh, so I ask this question seriously without any hatred or hostility or anger. Okay. Um, Hang on. Uh, just that over the course of... Okay. Sorry, I had a problem uh, pausing it there. Okay, so let me kind of set this up. Brian, Brian McLaren's out there on the circuit basically talking you know, about how we need to treat people of other religions. And the question he's asking has to do with, okay, well, listen, you know, this touches on one of Jesus' teachings that we're to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name to all nations, right? And that means calling people in other religions to repent of their idolatry and their false religion and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. That's what's being, and you're sitting going, are you sure that's what that means? Yep, I know exactly that's what that means. Why? Because then we look at the app, at the Acts of the Apostles and how that then plays out. Over and again, the Apostles, when they breeze into town to church, to plant a church, especially the Apostle Paul, calls them to repent of their idolatry, calls their idols worthless, non-living things, right? And calls them to belief in the one true God and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ, the crucified and bodily risen Lord, the one promised in the Old Testament. That's not what Brian McLaren teaches, by the way. Let's continue. Many years, 
Uh, you have redefined and created your own version of Christianity, uh, one that is radically different from the faith revealed in the Bible. And I would like to uh, ask you, by kind of your rationale and by what authority you've done that, sir? Okay, that's a great question. And it's very clear that you have some differences with me. A few, yeah. <laughs> and, and you asked me your question with real respect. And can, can we all just say thanks for that? My Thank you for not throwing anything at me. I appreciate that, too. <laughs> and, and vice versa. I mean, that's sure. just a huge step forward, so I really appreciate that. Um, you know, uh, so your question is, by what authority do I do that? Well, I'm going to guess that you're likely from an evangelical background. More or less. And one of the things that I love about my evangelical background is it taught me to really <clears throat> respect the Bible even more than any human tradition. And I was a pastor for 24 years, and I've, I've read the Bible since I became a Christian in my teenage years. And the more I read the Bible, the more I felt that the interpretations I've been given didn't fit the real content and thrust of the Bible itself. And, um, uh, and so if, if I would say, by what authority I questioned some of the traditions I inherited, uh, for me that happened because I was reading the Bible. Okay, now, this is, this is an interesting development, okay? And the reason I say that, because there was a question, by what authority is he doing that? Now, what would help is, it would be a, you know, a longer conversation and interaction as a result of the, the fact that that was not because the context of how the question was asked and where it was asked, um, you, you don't have the ability to drill down to the finer details, okay? I happen to have an autographed copy of Brian McLaren's book, a new kind of Christianity that was published a couple of years ago, and um, so he's basically saying, "Listen, I, I, because I read, read the Bible, I started to challenge some of the traditions and the interpretations that we've received that have been handed down to us." Okay, now on the surface, this sounds like, "Hey, wow!" It sounds like he's basically trying to get back to the Bible. I would say, no, he's not, okay? Let's make something perfectly clear here. Now, it's one thing, okay, if you were to challenge a tradition, for instance, like the Roman Catholic tradition that says you can't eat meat on Fridays, right? All right, you sit there and go, where does the Bible say that you can't eat meat on Friday? Answer, the Bible doesn't say that. So that, well, where did that come from? Well, that's a human tradition. That's a human teaching, right? Uh, this and that's the idea. When Jesus talks about you know the Pharisees teachings as teaching as doctrines, the traditions of men, the traditions of men are t- teachings are doctrines that have their origin not in what God has revealed in His Word, and because of that, not in the mind of God, but traditions that have their origin in the minds of men. Let me give you another example. Okay, um, you, well, let's go back to Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism says that those who are to, you know, who are, are priests, you know, they, they call them priests, um, the, 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 the guys who are in charge of running the Mass on, on a Sunday morning, the, you know, that they can't be married. If you're going to be a priest within Roman Catholicism, you cannot have a wife. Okay, so they forbid marriage. Okay, now the question comes up, does the Bible forbid those who aspire to be pastors and elders and teachers in the church that they cannot be married? Answer, no. The Bible teaches the exact opposite. In fact, qualifications for a pastor is that 
not not that he's celibate, but that he's well that he's faithful to his spouse. Now he can be celibate, but that according to scripture is a gift that is given to very few people, okay? Very few people. So in the Bible it says that somebody who wants to be a pastor is to be the husband of one wife. And you go, "Ah, okay. So well, if that's the case, then how do you say how do you come up with a human tradition that forbids marriage for those who are teaching? Well, that's the thing. It's a human tradition. So the question then comes up, okay, well, Brian McLaren is here. He's questioning the interpretations that he's received, the traditions that have been handed down to them. So the question is, what are those traditions that he's rejecting? Okay. Well, from his book, we get a very clear, unambiguous uh, list of things that Brian McLaren is questioning. For instance, the overall arcing meta-narrative of the Bible. What is the overarching storyline of the Bible? Well, according to Brian McLaren, he rejects the the basic storyline that's been handed down from the beginning of of the church, which is actually revealed in Scripture, and that is is that the, here's the basic. Or, you know, you, you may be familiar with this. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything was good. And Adam and Eve were sinless, right? You you're familiar with this idea? And then they were tempted by the devil and disobeyed God, and as a result of it, they fell into sin, right? And as a result of that fall, all human beings were born dead in trespasses and sins, but God promised a Savior in the Garden of Eden and then sent that Savior, Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Son of God, who well, was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, right? All that. And we're to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins and call people to repent and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And those who believe will spend eternity with him. And those who persist in sin and unbelief will spend eternity in hell. Well, that meta narrative, Brian McLaren claims, is a human tradition. And that's not what the Bible teaches, according to Brian McLaren. He rejects it as some kind of a platonic imposition upon the biblical text. That is not what the Bible teaches, despite the fact the Bible clearly and unambiguously teaches that is exactly what the overarching storyline of the Bible is. Let me just walk through some of the other things that... uh, that Brian McLaren challenges. Brian McLaren, by the way, he asked the question, how should the Bible be understood? And so he basically argues that people who take the Bible literally argue it as a legal constitution, but in fact, what it really is is a community library. It's a community library. So it's weird that he's making an appeal to the Bible here because his appeal um, in answer to the question is more along the lines of legal constitution than community library. He's he's cheating here in his answer. Okay, so then he, the other other things that he questions. Okay, so the the idea if you believe that the Bible's authoritative, you're looking at it wrong, according to Brian McLaren. Um, and then he asks the question: Is God violent? Yeah. See, do we really believe that Jesus is going to come again to judge the world and send people to hell? Well, according to him, no. That's a human tradition that we've got to reject, right? Um, and so you got all kinds of interesting questions and things that he deals with. So dealing with the sex question, the church question, things like that. And it's clear that Brian McLaren rejects what the Bible teaches regarding human sexuality. He presided at his son's same-sex wedding. So 
it's important to ask the question, what human traditions is Brian McLaren rejecting? Well, Brian McLaren seems to be off point and off topic, and he rejects what the church has believed, taught, and confessed from the beginning. And it's weird because you know why the church has believed, taught, and confessed these things from its beginning? Because this is what the scriptures teach. This is what the apostles taught. This is what Jesus himself teaches. So, okay, so here we are. We're, we got the question being asked, by what authority are you making these changes? And Brian McLaren's answer shows that he's, uh, he's, he's cheating. He's cheating. And not and, and uh, I know you said that the version of Christianity I'm presenting I just made up and that it, it's against the Bible. Well, it's against certain interpretations of the Bible. There's no question. Yeah, it's against the historic Orthodox proclamation of the Scriptures. That's for sure. So yeah, you did really make it up. Um, but I, I think this, the difference is that none of us reads an uninterpreted Bible. The act of reading involves interpretation. And so uh, my... so This is a postmodern argument, basically. Though the question is, what does the Bible mean? What did God reveal? What did he say? So just because people have different interpretations doesn't mean that God didn't speak clearly and unambiguously and send a message that we were to believe. That's what really is I guess one way to say it is that when you study enough church history, you also come to realize that we have been wrong a lot of times. And the version of the- Now, this is true. American evangelicalism is definitely far astride of historic uh, Christianity. And when you read the Church Fathers, you're going to realize, whoa, something's really wrong with American Christianity. There's been places that they've been wrong, and they are, Okay. But that doesn't mean that it's just a free-for-all, just make up your own version of Christianity the way he's done. we inherited has already involved many people who had the courage at different points in our past to say that the tradition was wrong and that we needed to make a change. Now the question is, are we done with that process? Have we fixed everything so that it's reached a perfect state? Or are we still in that process now? And so that's why I've, I've... been willing to question some things. So I hope that, that helps. Sure. Would, would you mind one follow-up? Uh, oh, follow appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, uh, the, uh, the, the passage I was referring to is in Luke 24. It's kind of the, uh, uh, the, uh, one, of the one of the two um, pericopes of the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus has commanded uh, all, of his, all of his apostles and all of his yes. followers at the time which constituted his entire church, yes. his standing order is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all people groups. Yes, okay, and I didn't mention that. Thank oh, yeah, sure. Now watch how McLaren completely reinterprets this. Thank you. Um, that, that'll count as my second, though. Okay, well, <laughs> no, thank you, because I, I, and I remember that's brought that up. So, you know what? I actually think that's what I've been doing tonight. I think I've been preaching uh, repentance. I'm asking us to rethink the ideas we've had about other people, any ideas we've had about... Which in his book, by the way, uh, you know, Why Did Jesus Buddha and the Muhammad Cross the Road or whatever, um, that basically he's teaching universalism, getting us to not tell our neighbors who are in false religions to repent and believe in Jesus. What it means to be faithful Christians in relation to other people. So I've been sort of sneaking it in, I didn't tell you, but I've really been asking you all to repent, or 
and myself too. And um, forgiveness of sins. It's really key in this because here's our problem with these when these atrocities happen. We almost always get stuck in a cycle that goes like this. Somebody commits an offense which creates outrage, which leads to revenge. And that revenge becomes a new offense that creates outrage among the people who committed the original outrage, which then motivates them to additional revenge. And you can just see how that becomes the cycle of violence that we live in. This sounds eerily like Obama's explanation, original explanation for the uh uh, the Libya embassy attacks, uh, blaming it on the uh, that so-called YouTube video, which was, turned out wasn't at, at all what was going on. It sounds like it's kind of in that vein. And I think when Jesus talked about forgiveness of sins, he wasn't just talking about forgiveness of sins that related to God. He was trying to say, God is willing to forgive your sins, but that involves you forgiving each other and breaking out of that cycle. Because the only way we stop the cycle of violence is... When somebody does an outrage, that we, instead of an offense and outrage, instead of experiencing outrage, we learn to forgive the offender. And when that happens, I think that can break the cycle of violence. So, anyway, that, that would be... Uh, All right, so apparently repentance and the forgiveness of sins has really to do with breaking the cycle of violence. Oh, brother. Anyway, so that was uh, the question. Uh, It's important to note that Alan then went on afterwards to uh, call Brian McLaren to repent of his false teaching, and uh, I don't think he quite received that very well. But here's the deal, okay? It's one thing to to challenge the so-called traditions that we've been handed down. It's important for us to examine what we've been given as Christianity, make sure it's in accord with what the Bible teaches and with what the church has taught historically. Brian McLaren has a brand new form of Christianity, and it ain't Christianity. Ain't nobody nowhere, anyhow, at any time or any place in Christianity in the history of the church taught his Christianity. He doesn't have the authority to do what he's doing, and in order to get at it, he has to attack the authority of Scripture, claim it is not a legal document but a, a community library, and it, it, that way he can obfuscate the clear passages that contradict his new version of Christianity. And the, the history that he's concocted to explain where we got these traditions is far astride from what really truly happened and went down. Brian McLaren truly is a heretic. He's a very, very dangerous man who teaches a false Jesus, a false gospel, and, uh, well, he's off-topic. Off-topic in in a similar way to uh, the story that I'm going to read next explains. Russell D. Moore, who is a Christian Post columnist, and if I'm not mistaken, he also teaches at... uh, at Southern Seminary, has a, uh, a an op-ed piece in the Christian Post entitled Farewell to the American Protestant Majority. Great, There's a great zinger in here, but let me read this. Russell Moore writes, he says, According to a new study by the Pew Forum, Protestants are, for the first time in history, not a majority in the United States of America. I don't think that's anything, that's anything for evangelical Protestants or anyone else to panic about. Several years ago, I pointed out that studies were showing a declining Protestant majority and projections were being made for this very reality. Now the survey says we have a 48% plurality of Protestants. I wasn't frantic about that several years ago and I'm still not. 
when working toward our God and Country badges, my childhood Boy Scout troop was shuttled over to the neighborhood United Methodist Church for sessions with the pastor about being good Christians and good citizens. I remember my Southern Baptist sensibilities being shocked when the pastor said, in response to a question, that he didn't believe in angels or demons. The reigning cultural presence of mainline Protestantism served the same purpose as the God and Country badge. Give us enough Christianity to fight the communists and save the republic. And they said, they said, but let's remember not to take it all too seriously. That culture well is over. Frankly, we should be more concerned about the loss of a Christian majority in the Protestant churches than about the loss of a Protestant majority in the United States. Let me read that sentence again. This is spot on. Frankly, we should be more concerned about the loss of a Christian majority in the Protestant churches than about the loss of a Protestant majority in the United States. Most of the old-line Protestant denominations are captive to every theological fad that has blown through their divinity schools in the past 30 years, from crypto-Marxist liberation ideologies to sexual identity politics to a neo-pagan vision of God complete with gender-neutralized liturgies. Should we lament the fact that the Riverside Avenue Protestant establishment is now collapsing under the weight of its own bureaucracy? What we should pay attention to instead may be the fresh wind of Orthodox Christianity whistling through the leaves, especially through, uh, throughout the Third World and in some unlikely places in North America as well. Sometimes animus, Buddhists, and body-pierced Starbucks employees are more fertile ground for the gospel than the confirmed Episcopalian at the helm of the Rotary Club. Accordingly, evangelicals will engage the culture much like the apostles did in the first century, not primarily to uh, baptized pagans on someone's church roll, but as those who are hearing something new for the first time. There may be fewer bureaucrats in the denominational headquarters, but there might be more authentically Christian churches preaching an authentically Christian gospel. We will be pained to see idolatry springing up where churches once were, in that we have the same experience our brother Paul did two millennia ago in Athens in Acts chapter 17. But like him, sometimes it's easier to gain a hearing among people who know they uh, they are ignorant than those who think that they know. Paul listened to the pagan poetry about Zeus and showed the Athenian philosophers how not even they could live with the kind of God concepts that they had believed. Around us we hear the father hunger in the hip-hop lyrics blaring down the urban sidewalk. We see the fear of death in the plastic surgery clinics and the health clubs springing up in the suburban strip malls. We hear the despondency of sin lamented in the words of a country music song on the sound system in a rural gas station. Against all of that, we proclaim the only message that can answer these unconscious longings and these conscious resentments, Jesus and the resurrection. The pagans won't always listen, but they will know that we are saying something new. The American Protestant majority is over, and I say good riddance. Now, let's pray for something new, like a global Christian majority on earth as it is in heaven. Yep, great post. You know, and the punch there is is that um, within Protestantism, every fad of false theology has run through all of our seminaries and Bible colleges as a result of it. A large percentage of the people graduating from these institutions aren't preaching biblical Christianity, the latest culturally nuanced nonsense. 
So let's pray again for a pro- for basically a Christian majority within Protestantism. Then we'll be at, be able to answer the culture and give them the answers that they need, not necessarily the ones that they're looking for. All right, we are up on our second break. No kidding. When we come back from this break, we're going to be listening to a sermon where we're going to hear for the very first time on Fighting for the Faith somebody trying to exegete the book of maps. Yeah, no kidding. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning photo-written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Yeah, I'll wait for a second here and cue this up right. Hold on. The Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's um, 
<laughs> I don't even want to say Maslow. I don't even know what this thing is. This thing posing as a sermon uh, comes to us via Vision Church in Miami, Florida. Pastor Matthias presiding. That's his name, Pastor Matthias. The name of the um, said oration is Constipated Christians and No Joke. To the best of my memory, I've never heard somebody exegete the book of maps before. But, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know you could do that. Anyway, I mean, do you, when you exegete the book of maps, are you to use the Hebrew text or the Greek text? I'm a little confused. But anyway, uh, Pastor Matthias is going to explain to us how the book of maps shows us how not to be constipated Christians. If you are offended by constipation-type language... Um, then you will be offended by this thing that passes itself off as a sermon, even though it isn't. So, yeah, so if you have your Bible, please open to the book of maps. Oh, man. And uh, we're just going to dive right into the sermon, if you can call it that. Here is Matthias. Who in here has ever been constipated? You all thought I would go spiritual on you. Seriously, that's how you, sorry, it's Matthias. I mispronounced his uh, name wrong. It's, it's Matthias, not Matthias. It's Matthias. So starting off this <clears throat> sermon with, how many of you have ever been constipated? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> who, who, honestly, by a show of hands. <laughs> Some of you are like, I ain't ready. Really? This is how you're going to begin a so-called sermon. In a Christian church, during the time when people, pastors are to open up the Word of God, this is what you're going to start it off with. Okay. Raising my hand for that. This guy, this dude is weird. Oh, no, I'm weird, and my wife tells me all the time. Welcome to Vision, by the way. My name is Pastor Matthias. I'm glad you're here. Uh, why in the world is everybody sitting back there? It's like I'm looking at empty seats. Listen, take the seats first. The best seats are here. Now, ask yourself this question. Is he on topic? Is he preaching Christ, what Christ has done? Or is he preaching himself or preaching you? Is he rightly handling God's word to point us to Jesus? That would require him to properly teach law and gospel. And one of the uh, clear indicators, by the way, that somebody isn't preaching Christ is when they make you and your behavior the solution to the problem. Okay, because Christianity teaches that your problem is that you have sinned. The solution is not just trying harder next time. The solution is to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. If the solution is you and steps you've got to take, they're not preaching Christ. They're preaching something else, and they're off topic. Turn that for next week. Absolutely, because you get me spitting right at you. And, and that's, don't think that's a safe zone over there. There's seats available, so that's good. Churches start to fill up, which is awesome too. Listen, bring somebody next week and we'll yank down those drapes and we start to move people over there, amen? Church is growing, that is good. We have, we have just in the last two months doubled our youth group, doubled the amount of leaders we need to have. God is awesome. Let me tell you, a lot of people are getting saved, things are happening. God is on the move, amen? So let me tell you, get ready. Get ready that somebody will come to church and take your seat. Ain't your seat to start with. Get another seat so somebody else can get that one you warmed up, amen? It's all good. So, yeah, in other words, church isn't for you. They need your seat. Um, what does this sound like? Oh, yeah, it sounds like Matthias is a disciple of guys like Rick Warren, Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, Ed Young, Bill Cornelius, right? 
This doesn't make any sense. So don't come to search and warm up a seat. We need it because we're growing. So get out of the way. Don't come here to be fed. Watch what happens here. Today we're going to talk about constipation. Uh, Yes, we are. But we're going to talk about uh, Christians that are constipated. And if you don't know what constipation is, by the end of this message, I'm going to give you a biological definition, all right? You know your pastor loves you. I remember one time, and my brother Marcus might remember this. uh, We were on a family trip and had been driving from the northern part of Sweden. You know, I'm Swedish. That's where I grew up. I lived most of my life, you know, until I was about 21, moved over here to the U.S. And uh, we had gone about 12 hours. It's a pretty long road trip, and my, my younger brother, Andreas, had made a decision that he was not going to go to the bathroom. And the decision was basically to prove that he could hold it. That's never a good thing to do. Now, he needed to go after a couple hours. And I don't mean number one. I'm talking number two. <laughs> so basically, he was full of it for a while. Kakapupu, um, that is. And, and he held it the whole trip. And I remember this vividly. He got so constipated. Is anyone else offended like I am at just the brazen grossness of this man? I mean, this is so inappropriate. It's not even funny. I mean, really, poo-poo humor of this crass nature as part of the sermon in a Christian church? Really? This doesn't sound like Christ at all. And, and, and it's not fun, you know, being constipated, but when it's your younger brother, it's a lot of fun. And, and I remember going with my mom and dad, and we had to take him to, to the urgent care, and they had to give him laxatives, uh, rectal. I, oh, my goodness, that's not fun, right? Now, it was fun for me because I got to sit down, and he has watched part of this, you know, besides him being violated. Uh, I just got to be part of this little thing, and, and that's one of those stories that he remembers to this day of how he tried to prove he could hold it forever and ever, and then as a result of him not going to the bathroom, because the, the biological principle, you know, that God gives us is that what comes in got to come out. Oh, so we're preaching your brother's constipation episode as a biblical principle. Really? Oh, so we got a biological principle. What comes in has got to go out. Oh, well, are you applying that to your Christian walk? This is true biologically, but also spiritually. And a lot of believers, they don't get this simple point. So they think church is about me coming, me getting fed, me being spoon-fed, but they never give out anything, meaning they have never, ever in their life ever prayed with somebody to receive the Lord. Ever. Not even once. Yeah, notice what he's doing here. By the way, you want to know what a good work is? The Bible defines it. Okay? So the Bible defines good works as being a good husband, good wife, good, obedient, respectful child, right? Uh, a good employee. These, these are good works. God's Word says so, right? So that being the case, when you go to church every Sunday, the job of the pastor is to preach the Word knowing that you have spent a week out in the world serving your neighbor in your vocations, okay, not vocation, but vocations. You have multiple vocations. And being tempted by the devil, falling short, and needing to hear once again of the mercy 
won by Christ on the cross, and being fed his word. Because Jesus himself says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So here, Pastor Matias, pastor, right, air quotes there, is browbeating the folks there and basically accusing them of having spiritual constipation because they come to church with the expectation of being fed. But who have you prayed with? He's not preaching a biblical text. This is a, well... Satanic antichrist browbeating, you know, that has nothing to do with God's what God's word actually says. They have never ever prayed for somebody and, and verbally opened up their mouth and actually prayed out loud and believed God for healing for somebody or done anything. These are some basic Christianity type one-on-one stuff. You might sit there and go, I've never done that. Now I don't mean to, to like hit you with the Bible and say you're bad, but I'm kind of intending to wake you up a little bit to shake you up and say shouldn't you because if you don't you think that if every sunday they were to come to church and christ was placarded and all the things that he said and has done for them and they were fed god's word that out of the overflow and abundance of joy that they would have because of their salvation because of the right standing before god because of what he has done for them because they are so full don't you think that they would then want to share that good news with everybody Hmm? In other words, if the pastor was doing his job and proclaiming Christ, don't you think that the people would then turn around and tell everybody about Christ? Hmm? Don't. Could it be that you could end up getting kind of bloated, constipated, stinky? Yeah, you know where I'm going with this. Full of, yeah. Now... We're going to go to the book of maps in the Bible today. Book of maps. Yeah, so this is, this is his biblical proof. That what he's teaching is really a message from God. If you don't know what that is, table of contents. No, it's not a book called Maps. I'm, I'm lying. Sometimes when I say that, people actually look for a book called Maps. It's not a book called Maps, but if you have one of those cool Bibles that some of you do, you go to the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, and it's Revelation, not Revelations. By the way, a little pet peeve of mine. It's singular. Revelation. So after Revelation, some of you might actually have maps in your Bible. Who in here have a Bible with maps in? Uh Uh-huh. You don't get that on your iPhones and iPads, do you? No. Well, I got both. I got old school here, and I got new school right here. And in my back pocket, I got the glory from God, iPhone 5. If you're on Androids, we love you too. No worries. In any case, I'm going to show you... A little picture from Israel, a map. See if we can bring up this, this map of Israel. And if you have your Bibles, looking at, look there too. And Now this is interesting. You hear a lot of talk about Syria, for instance, today. Uh, what's going on in, in just that region. You have Syria up there to the right. You see it? Uh, you have Israel, obviously. And this is one of the most contested pieces of land in the entire world. So if you keep on looking, you see that there's a body of water on top. This is where Jesus would go fishing and they would throw out their nets and Jesus would be like, no, you got no fish, go to the other side of the boat and throw it out. Like Lake of Galilee. That's where Jesus would do a lot of miracles. He would cross the lake and a huge storm would happening and they would wake him up and he would be all, no, 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 it's cool, you know, peace be still. Remember that? Remember Jesus walking on water? This is where he did that. Then you have this river. So if you look on the northern map part of the map and there's this river this is the jordan river this is where we read about jesus being baptized and stuff like that does that ring a bell okay now not the sea of galilee is known as one of the best places to go fishing Pablo would love this it is great fishing even today 
This is a great, great place filled with life. Everybody say life. Then as you walk your way down towards the Jordan River, the Jordan River spills into this body of water that we call the Dead Sea. Right? Now, here's what's interesting about the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is one of the most salty bodies of water on this planet. And if I show you this next picture, you can see kind of what it looks like in this region here as you get to the Dead Sea. So if you go there, you can basically just grab a newspaper, sit like you were sitting in a recliner, and you can sit for an hour reading newspaper in the water. Isn't that weird? It's so salty that the salt content itself will have you sitting in the water with no effort. You can lay there, read a newspaper, take a, take a nap. Isn't that pretty cool? That's how salty it is. Now, let me bring up this next picture so you can really see what's going on around the shores of this lake. All of that is salt. Isn't that crazy? Straight salt. Now, let me ask you a question. If the Sea of Galilee, that is the most northern part on the map, let's bring up that map again with the, of Israel. You have the Sea of Galilee on top, lots of fish, great healthy body of water, right? You have this river coming down, Jordan River. By the way, it's also really healthy water. And it keeps heading south, and every day, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of gallons of fresh water is streaming into the Dead Sea. The question is, why isn't the Dead Sea getting better? Why wouldn't it keep getting better if, if this fresh, awesome water keeps going? See, you don't even know that you can go to the maps in the Bible and you can get a sermon out of the maps. That's how good stuff this is. The reason is this. It has an inlet, but no outlet. The water becomes stagnant. It goes in and, and here, check this out. Here's what happens to a lot of people, including this church. Because I'm not going to stand up here and say, okay, every other church, you know, that's them and not us. Honestly, it happens as much in our church. People come and they get a good word, they get a fresh word, they get an anointed word. And they never give it out. And because of the fact that they don't give out what they got, they become stagnant. They become salty. But salt is only good with that much. You know what I'm saying? Like you put a little salt on your steak. But would you take off the lid of the salt shaker and dump all the salt? You know, what's really funny is, is that, you know, <laughs> he's basically preaching maps as if it's inspired by God. You know, see, God inspired this to be preached this way. Um, and so we got some biblical principle that apparently is going on here. But, um, I mean, contrast this with what Jesus taught. Um in fact, here's what he said. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Watch this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except for be thrown out and trampled under feet. So Jesus is telling us to be salty, and he's telling us that salt is, is only good for so much. Now, here's the deal. i got to be fair. I'm ripping Jesus out of context here and not paying any any attention whatsoever to what Jesus meant by that. But Jesus didn't, well, it's it's not as if the geography of Israel 
is a written word from God that we're supposed to get a message out of. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, what this guy's doing, he's not actually teaching the Bible, even though this map appears in Scripture. Okay, I mean, for heaven's sakes, I mean, in my Bible, I mean, there's a, there's maps of the entire Mediterranean world. I mean, should I sit there and look at the fact that, oh, well, look, here, Italy, you know, ancient Rome, um, you know, that, that their geography looks like a boot. So that should tell me that we have marching orders to get busy and go out and march like soldiers. Nothing of the sort. This is just ridiculous. Fault on your stake. Now you know that stake is ruined, right? Do you see what I'm saying? And then that, that, that Christian who becomes like that tried to witness to somebody else, but it becomes like you're dumping the entire container of salt on them because your life is not refreshing. Uh-oh. <laughs> Sorry for telling you the truth. My life is not refreshing. What Bible verse says that? This is what I call constipation. Constipated Christians. And, and here's the thing. Look, look. That, that's what you call it. Where Where is that phrase mentioned in Scripture? Where is this concept taught in the Bible? Look up here now and pay attention very carefully. I truly believe that most of us in this room, we are not in the danger of ruining our lives. I don't think you're going to wreck your life and go kill yourself tomorrow and stuff like that. But you are probably in danger of wasting your life. What about the dangers of ending up in... Hell. Do you think that's a real danger? I mean, because that, that's more than just temporal. That's eternal. Life. Wow. Let that sink in for a moment. Because most people are not on the edge of the cliff about to fall off. And, and basically, yes, that's it. Life is just boom, 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 done. But the vast majority of people I know are in the danger zone of wasting their life away. You say, well, when I get older, I get more mature. I, I pay more attention to God. Do, do you even know if you will get older? Do you even have that promise of tomorrow? Because I don't. I, I'll get more mature, you know. I'm in my 20s. So I just going to party and have some fun now. But when I get 30, 35, get married, have kids. Listen, if you don't do it right now, you will not do it right then. It's all about sowing and reaping. And here you go, and you look back at your life as you get older and say, Man, I wasted so much time. I love the fact I saw on Facebook yesterday how one of our teenagers were doing their discipleship stuff. So, so they are memorizing a scripture a week. They're reading two, three chapters a day. They're tithing their money. They are... They're Notice law, 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 law. Where's Jesus? He's not pointing us to Christ at all, is he? He's off topic. Taking notes, on, including the service. They take notes on the services. They attend youth group. They, they take notes on their Bible reading. They do all of these things, which, by the way, is more than most adults in this church. And then this teenager put a, a picture on Facebook of their devotional book, their notes, their Bible, and wrote this, time for my discipleship. And her brother wrote, I love this, you are more mature and better off at this age of your life than I was. I think that was a good piece of encouragement. I thought it was really, really cool. Because it takes some guts to say, you are ahead of me at this point in your life. But listen, sister, you're doing good. How are you doing? Because when you only get, 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 eventually if it doesn't come out and you don't release it, there's constipation. Does it make sense? Say it makes sense. All right, I hope so. 
So in any case, it says this in Luke 6.38. We should have it on the screens for you. Give and it shall be, come on. Given unto you a good measure, pressed down, shaken, together, running over. What does it say after that? It says it will be poured into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it shall be measured to you. So, so I brought a Coke can here. Um, this is why some people are safer in that section today than here. No worries. Anybody ever been to SeaWorld when they say this is the splash zone? Fair warning, okay? Uh, you all have white shirts on there. So, so this is how it works with giving, are you ready? It said this. Give and it shall be given to you, right? It shall be pressed down. It's like if you take your hand and you like, be like the force of an imaginary thing that is being pressed down. Can you imagine as you give, God goes, I'm going to start to press down blessings on you. I'm going to mm, press it down. Not just, mm, give, no, like press it down. Feel it. Mm, press down and then shaken together. Shaken together. Shake it, baby. Shaken. What happens when you shake something? What happens when you shake something? Shaken together, running over. Do you know what that means? As God presses down his blessings to you because you give, he will now start to do a shaking in your life. And, and by the way, it's not fun when your life is shaken by God. It's like taking a piggy bank, putting it upside down and shaking it because you want those coins to fall out. That's what I used to do when I was little. <laughs> Tried to get candy money. My parents didn't know it. I took that piggy bank upside down, start to shake it. Little coins would come out. I'm confessing my sins. Mom and dad will hear this message probably by Tuesday. God is good. Okay, so check this out. God will press it down. God will start to shake it. Should I open it? I'll put it down. No, no, I'll do it. I switched cans. <laughs> okay, notice he's taken Luke 6 out of context. Okay? I would strongly advise you to go and read this in context. Because the question that you need to be asking is, well, is Jesus here talking about giving money? What's he talking about? Because that sure seems to be what Matthias is focusing on. You know, a good measure pressed down and shaken up. And, you know, he's given no context for the teaching here. Um, let me provide just a little bit of it for you. Luke chapter 6, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful." Now, I want to point something out here. Remember, the, the, the metaphor he's using here is constipation. And he's claiming that Christians are constipated if they come to church and expect to be fed God's word and expect to be given to, but then don't turn around and pray with others. Is that what Jesus is talking about here when he says, a good measure pressed down and shaken together? Look at it in context. I'm not going to actually fill in the dots for you on this one. Open your Bible 
and take a look at what Jesus is talking about. Is Jesus saying, don't come to church expecting to be fed and then don't give? Is that the context? You'll be surprised. It's like not even close. Let's continue. Ha ha! Coca-Cola. You guys are too gullible. You think I would do that to you? Yeah, I would. I would. I would. I so would do it too, but... I do love you, though. See, see, listen. When you give to God, God will start to press down his blessings over you. He'll start to shake your life. That's not what this text is saying. Notice it's a quid pro quo. This is all law. You give to God and then God will bless you. God can't do anything until you give to him. But see, the scriptures say that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners and powerless, Christ died for our sins. Huh. He will, he will, he will let it not just hit you, but it will be running over just like that can exploding and spewing it out. And, and the blessing will start to hit others around you. See, it becomes contagious. It becomes contagious, but, but here's the thing. Check this out. You all think I'm talking about money. And money is probably only one-fifth of what I'm talking about right now. So you are talking about money. Okay, just want to make sure we're clear on that. You are talking about money. You're not not talking about money, but it's only one-fifth of your, of your overall point. But it, it is a substantial 20% of your point. Money is one-fifth. Everybody, hold up your hand. One-fifth. High-five your neighbor. Say high-five. Bam. Look at your other neighbor. Give him a high-five. Hit him hard. No, that was like very sissy for some way. Come on. One, two, three, go. Bam. There you go. Yes. Tag, you're it. You're blessed. Let me teach you this very quickly. Are you guys ready? The, the five T's of stewardship. The, the five T's of stewardship? What Bible passage is this from? Meaning each word will begin with the letter T. Everybody say T. Five T's. I'll, I'll, I'll give them quickly to you. Number one is your time. Number two is your talent. Number Yeah, where, where are these five T's taught in the Bible in context so we can know them as the five T's of stewardship? Hmm? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, sorry. You don't, you don't feed the people who come to church their God's word. <laughs> you just rip verses out of context because you wouldn't want them to become fat and constipated. Sorry, my mistake. Number three is your testimony. Number four is your treasure or your tithe. And number five is your temple. Let me break this down for the ones of you that hasn't grown up in church and you don't know some of these things. Now, now time is easy, right? We all have 24 hours in a day. We have 1,440 minutes, 86,400 seconds. That's, that's what we're given every day. So my question is, how much of your time do you give God? None. Shouldn't he have some of it? Because if you give your time, do you think, give and it shall be given to you? Press down, shaken together, running over? But if you eliminate your time, now you're down to four options. And you already took away one-fifth of your blessing. Hello? One-fifth. Your talents. How has God gifted you? How has God made you? What's your DNA? You're a great people person. You love to smile. Why aren't you serving on our greeter team? Welcoming people as they come into church? Why not? Perhaps you play an instrument. Why don't you play on a worship team? Perhaps you are great with computers. You actually know what Twitter is and how to send a tweet. Like Instagram is part of who you are. Hello. By the way, our church have close to 13,000 followers on Twitter. 
God is just blowing up what we're doing on the internet. There's no other church in South Florida even remotely close to that. I, I, I including every single church, Spanish and English, in that statement. 13,000, very short. Next month we'll be over 13,000. Things just keeps adding. So if you know what Twitter is, some of you go, tweet, what? Okay, that means that you probably is not the right person to run our media stuff and our computers and the words and the lighting. But we have thousands of dollars of equipment that we need. We need camera operators. We need all of these things. Well, perhaps you are great at baking. I love you. I mean, what is worse than like a bad cup of coffee? You know what I'm saying? That's annoying. Come on, who in here is saying a bad cup of coffee is really annoying? But if you get that good cup of coffee in the morning, come on now. I'm talking spiritually to you right now. It just is God's gift to you. <laughs> ha. You know what I'm saying? We need people to make coffee. That gets done in the morning. People that bake. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not just your time, but it's your talents. Don't rob God of your talents. Because if you don't give him your time, and you don't give him your talents, now you're down to three. And these are all five areas that God has given you to be a manager of. Okay? Let, let's look at this one. How about your testimony? That talks to how you live your life. How you represent Christ. Do people know you're a Christian? Do people at your work know? Do your family know? Do your friends know? If they don't know, my friend, you are not living a life where your life is a testimony for Christ. Read Revelation 12, 11. That should scare you because if you don't have a testimony, how can the devil flee from you? You need the blood of the lamb, but also the word of your testimony. Hello? What? The word of my testimony? Really? What Bible verse is adding in again? So now you don't give him your time, you don't give him your talent, you don't live in a life that is pleasing to him, perhaps the contrary, and now comes the treasure, your time. Yeah, um, can we talk about Jesus? Because um, as Jesus' half-brother pointed out in his epistle, if we've broken God's commandments at one point, then we're guilty of breaking all of them. So yeah, the real problem that's addressed by Christ's death on the cross is that we haven't lived a life that's pleasing to God. That's the reason why Jesus was hanging on the cross. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our... You familiar with Jesus at all? I mean, here you're browbeating all these people and telling them all the things they need to be stewarding, and you haven't told them a thing about what Jesus has done for them. And you call yourself a Christian pastor? Five, the ten percent. Are you are you giving your money? Are you supporting what you say you believe in? Because if you don't, I dare to say your checkbook will tell me the story of what you prioritize. Uh oh. And how about your temple? How you treat your body? Do you know that God wants us to treat our body good? Because this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. See these five areas we are to be stewards of. Everybody say stewards. And as you give these five areas to God, because when most people say, you know what, given it shall be given to you, pressed down, shaken over, running over with the measure you give, it shall be given unto you. I dare to tell you that it's not just about you writing a check each week. That is an easy way out. It's an easy way out to write a check or go to the website and put in some money. That's easy. I think God respects you tremendously when you start to give him your talent and your time. And you say, I want to live my life 365, 24-7, where people will look at me and they will see me burn for him. Listen to me now. 
Will you live in a way that is pleasing to God and that you reflect Him by your actions, your attitudes, and how you live your life? I think God will start to give back to you even more. So this is blessing by works. Yep, God wants to give you all kinds, but you got to start burning for Him. Yeah, this isn't blessing by faith or God's favor by faith in Christ. Oh, this is you earning it by managing the five T's. And if you don't, well, you know, you're in trouble. As you take care of your body and understand that what you do and who you live is as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you guys are with me so far? See, the recent Christians get constipated. And you might have some people in your life, they say they're a Christian. And you say, if that's what a Christian is, I would never want that. They are fake. They are phony. I live better. Anybody ever said that? Because I have said it a few times. Have you ever said that about somebody? They say they go to church. They are such a hypocrite. Do you know what you're talking about right now? Somebody that is so constipated that they stink. No, you're dealing with somebody who is a sinner who thinks that Christianity is all about moral living. Christianity is about repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, if you understand the biblical gospel, um, you don't have to worry about the hypocrite claim because real Christians come to church with the understanding that we're sinners, all of us, and we go to receive from God his gifts, his gifts of his word, the Lord's Supper, the forgiveness of our sins. You see, it, with the biblical gospel, there's no, there's no point in hypocrisy. It's not some kind of glamour show based upon who's more pious than the other person. That just vanishes because we don't put any confidence in the flesh or our own self-righteousness. Biblical Christianity teaches that we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, not our own. So, you know, he's sitting here calling it constipation. I'm calling it just false hypocrisy. In fact, it smells not like constipation, but by the Judaizing heresy, false legalistic Christianity that isn't Christianity at all. They might come in and raise their hand or write the check and act it all up, but they leave church and they act just like anybody else you know, right? That's somebody that's constipated and it's not even honestly pleasing to God anymore. Wow. Give and it shall be given to you. I would dare to say this. If you want to receive from God, you better give first. And it's time to step up. This is what it says. And yet the scriptures tell us that Christ gave himself for us. Before we have done anything good or evil, right? Christ gave himself for us before we'd done anything good at all. We were all born dead in trespasses and sins. And while we were still dead in trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. He wasn't waiting for us to do something so that he could then respond. No. He acted unilaterally. And his gospel raises us from the dead. You see, this guy's got it 180 degrees backwards. He's off topic. Why? Because he's preaching law. You're the solution to your own problem. God is expecting you to step up. But see, the thing is, is the biblical gospel is that Jesus is the one who stepped up. He 
took your sin upon himself and suffered the wrath of God in your place. Not because of anything good that you had done. No, because he is merciful, gracious, kind, and he is calling us to repent and to believe and trust in him. This guy is preaching nothing but pure, unadulterated works righteousness. In James 1.22, if anybody's ever been in discipleship right now, I want you with one word together with me, quote James 1.22, 1, 2, 3, go. You're reading the screens. Ha. Take it off, Evelyn. That's such a cheating there. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Can I tell you what this word says, the Bible? It says that if all you do is hear it, you are lying and deceiving yourself. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Right. John chapter 6. By the way, John chapter 6. If you have your Bible, you definitely want to get this out. I mean, I think it's a good cross-reference for this verse that he just took out of context. Um, Here's what it says. John chapter 6... Verse 28, so they, the Jews, said to him, Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work of God, to believe in the one whom he has sent. Right? And we're saved, by the way, to do good works. We're set free from bondage and slavery to sin, death, and the devil, and now free to serve our neighbor. Not because we're trying to earn brownie points from God, because then what happens is your good works are a means to an end for you. But no, we're set free from sin, death, and the devil by the shed blood of Christ, by the gratuitous favor of God poured out for us on the cross, right? So what do we do? We do good works because that's what we're set we're, we're set free to do. Yeah, this guy's preaching literally pharisaical self-righteousness. All law. Where's Christ? What where does Jesus and the cross fit into this guy's theology? It's about doing. It's about doing because when you do it, you show that you believe it. Amen. Amen. This is critical. Well, then you don't believe it because you don't do it perfectly. That's what the law demands. The one who wants to be justified by the law, must continue to do all these things. I truly believe for everybody in this room, there's something you can do for the kingdom of God. You say, but pastor, you don't even know. I'm so screwed up, so messed up. I, I don't even know that much about God. If you are in here today for the first time, you receive Christ today. I can put you by the door, smiling and handing somebody a bulletin, and all you can do is smile and say, welcome. Why so, should you have to go through some kind of... So this is basically him browbeating these people because he needs volunteers, you know, for his mega church, Vision Church in Miami, Florida. I wonder what they believe. I'm looking at their website here. Found their belief statement. What we believe and who we are. Traditionally, when someone finds a what we believe link on a church website, they find an abbreviated canned commentary on various doctrines to which the church adheres. We at Vision Church are not very good at being canned. Instead, we value being original, creative, and above all, honest. Read on to discover what we believe and who we honestly strive to be. 
Well, that's scary here. So first headline here, there. we believe in being God-hearted. It all begins with God. We believe that he is the creator of all, that he is unlimited, unchanging, that he needs that he needs for nothing, except for you to volunteer, apparently. And yet, in needing nothing, he chooses us personally and individually. He seeks out his creation, you and me, in his pursuit. He shows himself compassionate and merciful, though sometimes our view of this is clothed, is clouded because our world is broken as a result of our choices, not his. But even in the midst of our failed choices, he chooses redemption. He is active, involved, the sum of which unconditional, unrelenting love. I don't even know what that means. This is from their, what, their believe, they, their, what we believe statement. Christ-centric. Jesus Christ is the heartbeat of everything we do. He is the most extraordinary and exciting presence to ever walk our planet. This is amazingly profound because he has wonderfully, radically, and eternally changed people's lives for 2,000 years, and he used a cross to do it, a cross where he died in order to pay for the price for our brokenness and yours. Simply put, he paid what we owed, but he didn't. it didn't end there. He was resurrected and eternally lives to bridge the chasm between God and us. Though he walked the planet 2,000 years ago, he still desires to have relationships with the people of today. He is God's son. He is God, born of a virgin, God with flesh, savior to anyone who believes his message. We view his full humanity and full godness as gloriously mysterious, yet simple enough for anyone um, who says, "I, I want to know you. People matter. All people are God-made, which means that all people are God-valued. We are filled with unlimited potential, yet tragically flawed. Calvary, where Jesus died on the cross, proves that people matter to God, and they matter to us, too. Good night. What a convoluted mess. Uh, I mean, so there's their creed. It begins, you know, there's more to it, by the way. You know, there, there's more to it. Their, their creed begins with being God-hearted and Christ-centric. But if they were Christ-centric, don't you think they would be preaching Christ? You know, or at least Pastor Matthias would be preaching Christ here? But he's not. He's preaching them, not Christ. Weird. A weird membership class to smile. Come on. It drives me insane that we put these requirements of church and we say, well, in order to do this, you know, you got to be in full-time ministry for 18 years. And basically, if Jesus showed up, he would not qualify because he's, he was in ministry for three years before he died. No seminary degree. Hello? He had... Uh, hello? He's God in human flesh. <laughs> I think that's probably better than any seminary degree ever. Oh, good night. Sandals on. Long hair. I mean, I'm trying to get there, you know, to be more Jesus-like. How do you know Jesus had long hair? Do you have a picture of him? Where in the Bible does it say Jesus had long hair? Hey. We put these fake requirements on people. When you give, you receive. And unless you start to give and be a part of the kingdom of God, my friend, let me tell you, you will never ever be fulfilled as a believer. Let me prove it to you. Matthew 7, 24. If you have your Bibles, look it up. You should underline a couple of things if you have your Bibles. We'll have it on the screens. No, actually, for no, we're not going to have it on the screen. Just the thing. You need to look in your Bibles on this one. Matthew 7. Yeah, some of you are like, really? Yeah. It's good stuff. I'm reading from my iPad. 
Matthew 7, 24 says this. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and put them into practice. Everybody say practice. practice. Notice now, this is Jesus speaking. Therefore, anyone who hears... <clears throat> um, which things did Jesus say that we're supposed to practice? You see, this is from the Sermon on the Mount, not from the verse on the Mount. And so um, don't you think if Jesus is making a point here that you might want to pay attention to the things he actually said in the Sermon on the Mount, not the verse on the Mount? Don't you think context might help here? What things should we be doing? I think the context would tell us that. Why don't you tell us those things then? Here's these words of mine and puts them into practice. Wow. He's like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because its foundations, listen here now, was on the rock. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not, everybody say not. Not do what? Not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Yeah, so let's take a look at the, you know some of the things that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, not the verse on the Mount, and see if we can uh, try to figure out what Jesus is getting at here. He says, everyone who hears, hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Well, let's go all the way back to, well, let's see here. We'll, we'll start at Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for the many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we... Forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Okay, so one of the things that, you know, if you want to build your build it on the rock, not on sand, one of the things you ought to be doing, praying the way Jesus has taught you to pray daily, right? Okay. Um, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive them their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. All right, so the idea is because we're forgiven, we forgive. So are you doing this? Are you building your house on the rock, right? Okay. And here's another one. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Just continuing on, because Jesus there and the Sermon on the Mount is referring to something, right? That statement, the one who does these words of mine is like, you know, builds his house on the foundation of the rock, right? There's an antecedent to that phrase, because chapter 7, we're winding down the Sermon on the Mount. Well, let's take a look at verse 6. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Okay, so you know, so prayer, pray, forgive, and fast, and fast in such a way that ain't nobody seeing it. Right? It's just between you and God. So truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Oh, here's another one, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Got it? So in other words, don't commit the sin of idolatry when it comes to money. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if, you're, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is where the real punchline comes in in the sermon, by the way. Sermon on the Mount, not the verse on the mount. So far, the things that Jesus wants us to put into practice, right? Prayer, pray the Lord's Prayer. Fasting, mm-hmm. not laying up treasures here in heaven, right? Yeah, okay, the, the, those forgiving others because we're forgiven, right? And here's like the kicker. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food in the body, not more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Notice that the anxiety here is caused by something, and Jesus is going to get to it. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow, and neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will not much more he clothe you, O you of little faith. See, Jesus here is getting to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is that people don't believe. They don't have faith in him. They don't have faith in God. So Jesus here is getting to the root of the matter and calling them to trust him, to trust him, to trust God, right? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God's righteousness that's given to you as a gift. That's what he's referring to. Cross-reference this with Philippians chapter 3. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not your own, his, that's given as a gift by faith. And all these things will be added to you. you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You see what's going on here? So you want, when Jesus says in Matthew 7, the one who puts these words of mine into practice builds on the rock. Well, surely this is true. And Jesus here, the main punchline, his main point in the Sermon on the Mount is for you to believe and trust in your gracious and loving Father, your God who knows what you need even before you ask it. Seek first his kingdom and the righteousness that is given to you by faith. It's God's righteousness as a gift. All these things will be given to you. And all of these other things, those are fruits of of faith. Your main problem is, well, lack of faith and trust in God, right? All right, so there we go. So he's just preaching this, go and be obedient. Yeah, but when you look at it in context, there's certain things that Jesus here is getting at, and you just conveniently omitted them all so that you can make your own list that's apparently Jesus is telling you to do, you know, like volunteer at church and, you know, tithe and stuff. 
I think Jesus just proved my point right here. If all you do is hear it and never do it, it's like you go down on South Beach and you build this beautiful home, but it has no foundation because you built it right on the sand. And you can build an impressive home. You can even build an impressive life. You can become a multi-millionaire. You could get that coveted corner office with a title saying COO or CFO. And you can own stock options and drive the nicest cars. And be married to that woman or man of your dreams. Have 2.1 kids. Labrador meeting you at the door, licking your feet every time you walk home. And that might last for a while. But if you don't have Jesus in your life, one day it will all crash down. The storms will come and the divorce will hit you and cancer will hit your family and people around you will start to die and you get stabbed in the back by somebody at work and betrayed by a business partner and you realize that the people that were so best friends with you no longer are your friends. Have you ever gone through some of this? It's called life. I don't think I'm the only one that lives in the real world. You do too, right? And you realize all of a sudden that what you thought, thought would be a perfect life has now spun out of control. And it's like you're in a roller coaster and you're going up and down and up and down and up and down. And sometimes you feel like, God, if this is it, I might as well give up. Have you ever been there? If anyone hears my words, but puts them into practice, he becomes like a man who built his house on a rock, on a firm foundation. We sang that song, Jesus Christ, Cornerstone. Cornerstone. When he becomes that foundation that you build your life on, your decisions, your direction. Well, he ain't the foundation of this sermon. Like, not even close. Otherwise, you'd actually be preaching him. You know, what he said, what he did, all that stuff. You know, from a gospel text or something like that. You know, you familiar with his? That's the idea behind preaching the word, right? So, I mean... Why don't you show us what it's like to have Christ be the cornerstone of a sermon? And maybe somebody might be able to extrapolate from that. Maybe what it looks like to have Jesus as the cornerstone of their life. Hmm? You have a solid foundation. And as life will come and rock you back and forth, you know that you might be shaken, but you will never be moved. See, you have a solid foundation. Listen here now. Have you ever said this in church? Wow, that was a great word. Uh, oh, so-and-so should have heard that word. Have you ever said that? Oh, it was a great word, but not, not, not for me, but I know who it was for. So how come you didn't bring them? Because now you robbed them from that blessing that God wanted to give them in that message. Seriously, I'm throwing it back to you. Because if you ever been there and said, oh, I should have invited so-and-so, that would have been the word of God for them. I know it. So my question to you is, shouldn't you have invited them? Because the worst thing they could have said is no. But if they would have come and you would have been faithful to go and invite, they would have heard the word that God wanted to give them. And you just confirmed it by saying, that was a word for them. I should have invited them. Wow, that should scare us. So, so how do you not become a constipated Christian? Well, basically, you take these five areas and you say, God, how can I give my time? How can I give my treasure? How can I give my talent? How can I give, give, give an honor with my temple? How do I treat this, this correctly, etc., etc.? You know, how do I live my life so that my testimony reflects God? Well, well, let me explain this to you. Are you ready? The first thing you got to do is that you got to get...
Yeah, keep in mind that the apostles didn't tell their testimonies. They testified to the life of Christ. They make cameo appearances in the gospel text because it's all about Jesus' life. That's who you're supposed to preach. Your life is not the gospel. Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that's the gospel. To write this down, you got to get plugged in. Everybody say plugged in. Plugged in. you got to get plugged in. Now, 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 the way this works, by the way, when you get plugged in, it's all right. I have a long leash. All American Fender Stratocast. <laughs> Should we sing some songs together? Yeah. <laughs> How does this sound? <laughs> What's the problem? Que paso? Oh, I'm not plugged in? Are you sure? plugged in, how can God play that tune on you that he wants to play? If, if you're not plugged into what God wants you to be a part of, see, see, people come to church and say, oh, it's a good church. You know, I go to that church sometimes, but is it your church? Is it where you not just give your money to, but you give your time, your talent, your testimony, all of these things that you say, this is my thing and I am a part of it. I am plugged in see see the problem the problem is that so many people come to church and there might be somebody listening to this message online and my word for them would be this you need to be plugged into the church you attend you need to be plugged in and give your time you need to give your talent you need uh, the job of the pastor is to serve the congregation not the other way around you got this 100% backwards need to give your tithe. You need to give everything. You understand me? If you're not plugged in, how can you be played on? How can God play that melody that brings out that sweet poetry that God has for your life, right? You got to be plugged in. It says in Hebrews 10.25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another. See, listen. Some people start to be like, ah, church once a month, twice a month, whatever. Do you know what they, they are? Because when you have a, a Christian without a church, it equals a spiritual orphan. A Christian without a church body that they have ownership in becomes a spiritual orphan. Um, notice the verse that you said, gather together. What did, what did the... What do Christians gather together for in church to do? To hear God's word 
to be instructed in sound doctrine, right? And to pray and to receive the Lord's Supper. That's what the church gathers to do. The elders and the pastors in the congregation are there as structure to make sure that the congregation, Christ's sheep, are fed and cared for. See, that's the idea behind ministry. Yeah, again, you flip this 180 degrees backwards. The, the people in the church are not there to serve the pastor in his vision. The, pa- the people that attend the church are there to be served by the pastor. Church, listen. For the ones of you that are not plugged in, this is your season, and today is your day. Number two, write this down. If you want to get, get over spiritual constipation, you get plugged in. Because when you get plugged in, you start to give up all of these five areas. High five your neighbor say, he's talking to you. Seriously, I am. Talking to all of you. Number two, you got to remember who you are working for. Everybody say working. Remember who you are working for. I love this scripture. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. As working for the Lord and not men. Is there any particular reason why you keep quoting all of these passages out of context? Could it possibly be that, you know, you couldn't be schnookering these people into believing what you're saying as actually being sound doctrine if you were actually, you know, reading Colossians in context, the Lord's uh, the Sermon on the Mount in context and other passages in context, you're just hopscotching around and finding all these little proof texts that kind of weave together into your self-righteous, legalistic, moralizing uh, theology, and you're leaving out the gospel. I think the reason you're doing that is so that people don't really know what God's Word really says in these passages. Do you know what? This is one of my life scriptures. When you work hard... I don't care. This applies in two areas. A, your, your job where you earn money or the school you go to. You work hard. And two, the church you belong to where you're plugged in. You say, I am here to work. Last week I preached and I said, are you wearing your jersey, right? Are you part of the team? Because if you don't wear the jersey, you can't be on the field. Isn't that true? I don't care if LeBron James shows up and he says, I'm I'm wearing whatever I want to wear. Guess what? No. He needs to wear the team jersey for Miami Heat. Isn't that true? You wear the jersey of the team you're playing. You cannot be on the field without the jersey. And somebody walked up to me and said, Pastor, I needed to hear that. I I, I need to meet with you this week. How can I be part of this team? How can I give? Just tell me what is needed. And I told him this. I said, listen, this Sunday at church... After church, today, right now, we're doing a volunteer fair. We're going to highlight five, six, seven areas where we need help. You can get a one-page job description on every area. If that is media, computers, if that is camera, if that is making coffee, if that is working with the kids, if that is helping up to set up or tear down or whatever it is, if that's coming in on Sundays or coming in on Fridays. You can look at that. Get the piece of paper and say, you know what, I'm going to take this and look at it. Or you might already know and say, every third week I can be behind a computer and I can man that computer. I'm an organized person. Listen, we want you to be a little bit OCD, by the way, when you do the computer work. Like, like they would say stuff like this. Do you organize your closet by color? 
We might want you on our media team. You need to be kind of analytical and focused. Isn't it something, this is so annoying. I'm preaching and the wrong notes is up behind me. Or you're worshiping and the wrong lyrics is up, right? If that drives me insane, doesn't that drive you insane to you? That means that somebody who's back there is not paying right attention or drifted away. You need to be analytical, amen? Or I look at the camera. Uh-oh. I look at the camera. And all of a sudden, halfway through, my head was cut off. Because I moved a little bit too fast. And they're back there moving the camera and go, ah, that's not good. It means they need to follow along or... I walk up to the front of the church and the tablecloth is just thrown on the table and somebody says, well, what's the big deal? It's just a tablecloth. No, it's not just a tablecloth. You are representing the kingdom of God. You fold the tablecloth and you put it on perfectly. You make it look the very best. This is the kingdom of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? I have walked in and I've said this. I wouldn't even be happy with this. And I, I'm not even that, that good at stuff like this, but I could have put that tablecloth on better. So a ministry for you could be coming in, putting on tablecloths. Yes. Because you do it for the kingdom of God. Mm, okay, so now this is browbeating. He needs people to volunteer for all of the you know, volunteer positions in his megachurch. That's really what this is all about. Volunteer your time and give money. And you do it not as working for men, but working for the Lord. This is powerful. Could a ministry be walking inside this room after service is done and finding some trash and walking up to a garbage can and say, I'm going to put that in there. Yes. See, listen here. That shows a testimony to this school how we handle ourselves. It is not the job of a custodian or a janitor to do that. We should do it. Do you see what I'm saying? Work as it is for the Lord. You get plugged in, and then number two, you remember who you are working for. That's part of the reason I love that we're portable. We can put a lot of people to work. We can leverage our money so uniquely because we need you. Number three, and I'm almost set. Number three, you guys ready? Take notes, here we go. Boom, use what you have. Use what you have. Everybody look up here. Let me see eyeballs. I'm going to see the white in your eyes. Everybody looking? This is why some of you should be sitting here. Hint, hint. Leave those seats for people coming later. Look. What is in your hand? Nothing. That's the question God asked Moses. Moses, what do you have to... Uh, yeah, this is uh, the same scripture twisting that Rick Warren engaged in in his TED Talk, allegorizing the staff that Moses had in his hand. This is not what this text is about. The gift. What do you have in your hand? And Moses, read, read it's in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Moses said, nothing, a staff. A staff is all I have. And God said, well, fine, throw down that staff before me. Lay down what you have, even what you think is ordinary and insignificant, and then put it before me. And, and God took that staff, and in every passage after that, it doesn't say the staff of Moses, but it says the staff of the Lord. Because Moses gave what was his to God. And then Moses came in front of Pharaoh, and Moses took that staff and he threw it down and became a snake. Remember that part? Because it was the staff of the 
Lord. And Moses walked up to the Red Sea and he, he walked up to that sea and he, he took that staff and he, he walked up with that and boom, ate it. Because it was a staff of the Lord. Moses walked up to a rock and then they had no water to drink and he would take that, that he would hit that rock with that staff. Whose staff? Not Moses anymore. The staff of the Lord. See, listen, you got to understand that God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. There's this guy named Samson. Everybody say Samson. Samson found the jawbone of a donkey. Wow, not, not that impressive, right? The skull of a donkey, the jawbone. And he took the jawbone and he killed 3,000 Philistines in a battle. He has grabbed what was in front of him and said, I, if God can use this, whatever, I'm, I'm going for it. You can charge hell with a water pistol if God is on your side. See, see listen here. How, how about this little baby shepherd boy, teenager, David? David, wow. Slingshot. Couple of rocks. Facing the giant, Goliath. You think that was a special slingshot? You think the rocks were anointed, you know, $39.99 at the Christian bookstore? <laughs> Come on now. He just walked down to a river, picked up some rocks. He said, God, take what I have. Because in the name of the Lord, I'm coming against you. So listen here, when you take what God has right in front of you, what you already have in your life. How about the widow in 1 Kings 17? She had flour and oil. Flour and oil, wow. Very spiritual, right? Flour and oil. But she started to do this mass miracle with what she had. There is this story in the New Testament about a young little boy. Basically, he had been to McDonald's and got like a, a Mac fish fry thing. Some bread and some fish. Wow, that, that's really impressive, right? He had a packed lunch. <laughs> Here are thousands of people with no food. And Jesus goes, anybody have any food? Well, no. This is a boy. His mommy sent him with like packed lunch. <laughs> you know, a little Spider-Man case or something, you know. And Jesus goes, that's all I want. That's all I want. Some fish and some loaves of bread. Give me what you got and I can bless it. Do you see the principle? When you give to God what you... You know what's weird is that um, that's not the point of any of these texts. In fact, the, I'm pretty sure the words don't, that you just said don't appear in any of them. You're just ripping all these passages out of context. You're not teaching the biblical text and browbeating and guilt-tripping these people into giving their time and treasure to your little church vision. You have God will bless it. How? How? He will press it down over your life. He will start to shake it so it will run over. Amen. That was a good thing, right there. You should say amen. That was good. Amen. Let's look at this scripture. We're almost set. Ecclesiastes nine ten. Ecclesiastes nine ten. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going. There's neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Listen. Cue the sappy music. Sappy music is to create the impression that God the Holy Spirit's now arrived to do business there at the church. 
But he hasn't. It's just a manipulation technique. Whatever your hand, look at your hand or hands. Whatever this hand finds to do, do it. Pastor, I'm not called. You know, that's not my calling to fold curtains. Shut up. What do you say? Not my calling. If your hand finds to do it, do it. My calling is not to pick up garbage. I'm going to make it your calling. Because if your hands find to do it, you do it. You do it with all your might. Now, if you come to me and say, my hand is finding your guitar and I'm going to be after playing. You better be better than I am. Then I'll put you up here and I'll walk down. But you know what I'm saying? Sometimes we get so, so stuck up with, oh, that's not my thing, you know. It's, a, it's beneath me. What if Jesus would have said that on the cross? Oh, wow, snap. This is beneath me. Being spit out and ridiculed and laughed at. And he hadn't even done anything. The Bible says in Luke 14, 11, by the way, another discipleship scripture, he who humbles himself will be exalted. But he who exalts himself will be humbled. You know what I learned, church? I've learned from the best. And that is Jesus. That when you serve, you get back. I've seen people with tens of millions of dollars in their bank account. And I'm not kidding you right now. Bend down for half an hour before church and pick up garbage. Not at this church, though. I remember once walking up to this one guy who was doing that. I said, you don't need to do this. You're in your mid-70s. You're wearing a suit. Why should you be carrying a whole bunch of garbage? And he looked at me and he said, if I don't do this, who will? That was a life lesson for me. Because you can live in a penthouse of a skyscraper and you can have the millions of dollars in your bank account. But if you don't serve Jesus, my friend, you got nothing. You got nothing. So there you have it. A truly Jesusless, off topic sermon about Christian constipation that exegeted the book of Maps. And then a whole bunch of verses out of context, basically browbeating people. You need, we need volunteers to clean up the trash here because of our portable church so that we don't uh, leave a mess when we leave here after church. Oh, and give money. That wasn't biblical teaching. That was ripped out of context nonsense legalistic moralism, and Christ and his cross were not present. Yeah, I would say off-topic would be a polite way of saying it. So, what do you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.